Today's reading is from the 20th chapter of John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. For the first time since 1956, Easter falls on April 1st, and I can't think of a more appropriate coincidence. Many scholars trace the origins of April Fool's Day to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which many of us were forced to read in high school. And uh, in the Canterbury Tales, a proud rooster by the name of Chanticleer is tricked by a crafty fox before turning the tables and narrowly escaping death. And all of this took place on the 32nd of March, or April 1st. But regardless of its origins throughout the Western world, April 1st has become a day to celebrate practical jokes and hoaxes played on victims known as April Fools. In our secular age, many people might consider it appropriate that Easter falls on April 1st because it's commonly assumed that the resurrection is the greatest host and his followers the biggest fools. And while I believe the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection offer the only credible and rational historical explanation for the existence and persistence of the church, I also believe that anyone who claims to follow Jesus must readily adopt the label of fool. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that Christians are, quote, fools for Christ's sake. 
On Easter morning, the wisdom of the world was exposed by the foolishness of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If the power of God is revealed in the foolishness of the cross, then maybe Easter is an especially good time to renounce the wisdom of the world. If you practice loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, you're being a fool. If you practice hospitality towards strangers and those who could never repay you, you're being a fool. If you spend time seeking God's will in the scriptures, you're being a fool. But as you play the fool, know that God's power is working salvation in and through your life. Happy Easter Fool's Day. Those were not my words, but the words of the Reverend Matt Brown, the pastor of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, and I found them to be so delightful that I wanted to share them with you. But I can still remember the the first time that I was exposed to someone who thought that Easter was only for fools. One of my first real jobs as a teenager was as a busboy. It no longer exists anymore, but I was worked at the Boundary Waters restaurant in the basement of the Dayton's at Southdale. It was a fine dining establishment, especially famous for its popovers that you would get before your meal. And so I was a busboy, and since I was a teenager, my availability was mainly on Saturdays, and so I, w- I would work those, and including the Saturday before Easter. And at this point in my young life, I was a person of sincere Christian conviction. And I happened to be busing a table near a couple of friends who were out for dinner, a man and a woman. And as I cleared away the table next to them, the half-eaten popovers and nearly empty bowls of soup, I overheard their conversation, and the woman said to her male companion, I mean, do you think it was real? To which he retorted, what? The boom-boom and the tomb? No, it's redacted. It's a family audience, so I won't say the word that he used. And then he asked her incredulously, he said, do you believe it? And she said kind of sheepishly, well, I mean, yeah, I kind of always hoped it was true. He was wise. She was a fool. And I went back into the kitchen, and and I was feeling indignant. How could this man so flippantly dismiss Easter? Clearly, I was naive. But to this day, I identify with that woman. He was so certain in his skepticism, and and she was so uncertain in her faith. But honestly, on Easter, that's a good place to be. This mix of faith and, and doubt is what Mary Magdalene brought with her to the tomb early on that morning on the first day of the week. She hadn't been able to visit the tomb of her Lord since sundown on Friday when the Sabbath began, and she hadn't dared venture out alone at night. And so while it was still dark, at the very first inkling of the dawn, she went to the tomb expecting nothing but to grieve, to sit and mourn, to show her love to the one who, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast out of her. Those demons had left her when Jesus was alive, and so perhaps now that he was dead, she could sense them returning to her. She just needed to be close to Jesus' body. She just needed to weep. 
And then she saw something she could never have expected. The stone had been rolled away. And we know the end of the story, so it's very tempting for us to just jump right ahead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But she wasn't expecting anything like a resurrection. She went to the tomb without hope. And still at this moment, the tomb was nothing for her but a reminder of the cold, harsh, irreversible reality of death. And so when she saw that the stone had been rolled away, she ran. She ran in fear of what she might see there. She ran in fear that that Jesus' body might have been stolen or, or his tomb raided by grave robbers or, or even worse, that her Lord's body, his corpse, would have been desecrated. And so she ran to tell others. So maybe you can identify with Mary. You've come here to church on Easter and you're not exactly sure what it is that you're doing here. Maybe it's to make some relative happy. Maybe it's out of habit or duty. It's just, you know, something you're supposed to do. It's Easter, right? But you know what you don't expect? Resurrection. You've heard the story. You've sang the songs. Maybe you want to believe, but you just can't get there. Once you've fulfilled your social or other obligation to attend church, you're going to make like Mary and hightail it out of this sanctuary as fast as possible. Right after I I say the benediction, you will run, not walk to the nearest exit, which you shouldn't do because we have some delicious treats and wonderful coffee waiting for you in the fellowship hall after the service. So you can run after you get that, at least fill a doggy bag. But even if that's you, I'm glad you're here. And my only words to you are consider coming back like Mary does later for another look. And don't just come back, but, but look closer. Allow yourself to doubt your doubts. And in fairness to Mary, she doesn't simply, you know, run away. She runs to share this terrible news with Peter, and who is called the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple in this passage. I'll refer to him as the beloved disciple. And Peter would be the last person that you think she would run and go and tell Because the last time we saw Peter, he was busy betraying and denying and denouncing Jesus. I don't even know who he is. But when Mary reaches those two, she gives them the first Easter message ever. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Not quite, he is risen, he is risen indeed but a fitting message for faithless Peter. You abandoned Jesus in life. Are you going to now abandon him in death? But Peter and the beloved disciple play the fool. They run racing as fast as they can to the scene of the crime. And in this wonderful touch of detail that suggests an eyewitness account, we're told that the beloved disciple was faster than Peter. He might not have gone into the tomb, Peter did that, but at least he got there first. And when he gets there first, he looks in and he sees the linen clothes laying there. Nobody. Clearly what, not what you'd expect. If this had been the work of grave robbers, there no way, there's no way they would have unwrapped the body and, and, and left the grave clothes nice and neat. And there's no way that they would have taken the, what Peter saw, the cloth that covered Jesus' face, 
and folded it nice and neat and placed it just so. This was weird. But when the beloved disciple entered the tomb, it says he saw it and he believed. So we have the first Easter convert. But how, what what could he have possibly believed at this moment with the information that he had in front of him? Especially when John tells us that they didn't yet understand how the Scripture said that it was necessary or that Jesus would raise from the dead. And so let this be an encouragement to those of us foolish enough to believe, even though it doesn't all add up and we don't have it all figured out. Half-formed faith is still faith. All the beloved disciple can believe at this point is that the tomb is empty, and this must mean that Jesus is no longer dead and God is up to something. But what that something is, he couldn't possibly know. And so how much faith does it take to be a Christian? Just this much. So if you come here this morning thinking, I know I believe something, I'm just not sure exactly what, you are in good company. You're like the beloved disciple. But don't be like him and just go home. Wait. Linger here longer, expecting that when you do, Jesus is going to show up and show you more than you could imagine. Don't let it just be a one or two day a year thing. Keep coming back to the place where Jesus has promised to show up in in the reading and preaching of his word and here at this table. Be foolish enough to waste your Sunday mornings on something that some say can't compete with brunch. But come back here. Be the fool. Go to any other place where that happens. But now we finally get to the heart of the passage, starting at verse 11, and this is Jesus' encounter with Mary. In verse 11, we're told that Mary was still at the tomb. She had come back after delivering this news, and she was by herself, weeping. She was foolish enough to remain where her Lord isn't and cry. And the wonder of it all is that through her tears, she found the courage to step into the tomb and look where she dared not look before. And to her surprise, she saw two angels, one where the body had been, one sitting at the head, the other at the foot. And what's crazy about this isn't just that Mary saw two angels, but that she saw them in the exact same place where Peter and the beloved disciple had just been moments before, and they hadn't seen a thing except the burial clothes. So why was it that Mary could see and those two couldn't? And I think it was the tears. These heavenly beings were were keeping watch over this most sacred space and they could only be seen through the eyes of one who loved Jesus that much. I read a story in one of my commentaries this week about a student of the great 19th century French artist and engraver Gustave Doré. He's most famous for, um, he did engravings to illustrate uh, uh, Don Quixote. And so those are kind of the classic 19th century engravings that went along with that work. He's really the one who created uh, the images of, of, of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. And so he was a renowned artist. And he lived in Paris. And he had a, you know, a 
students who studied under him, and he had a whole workshop. And so one of his students produced this image of Christ, and he was really proud of this image. And so he brought it to his master for his verdict, seeking his affirmation. What a great product you've produced, an image you've produced. And Doré looked at this image for a long time, an uncomfortably long time, leaving the student in great suspense. And at last he said to him, you don't love him or you would paint him better. Mary could see what the others couldn't because through her tears she saw with the eyes of love. But there's still something that she hasn't seen. Or rather, someone who has been conspicuously absent from our Easter story, and that's Jesus. And now it's this encounter between Mary and Jesus that I want to look at really closely. And I want to look at what does it mean to have a transformative encounter with Jesus on Easter. And so the first aspect is that Jesus asks her a question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And so Jesus asks her this before he reveals himself to her. He cares more about her revealing her heart to him first before overwhelming her and revealing himself that he is not dead but risen indeed. And that's just who Jesus is. To to have an Easter encounter, we've got to open our hearts to him. We've got to share with him what what are our sins, our sorrows, our anger, our fears, everything. He, He just wants it all out there on the table in front of him. That's the invitation to an Easter encounter. Open our hearts to the Lord. And he asks her a simple question, but it's it's really the hardest question that there is. Whom are you seeking? And to paraphrase, I think Jesus is asking her, what do you want? That's really the hardest question of all. It's a question that you can drill down very deep on in your own life. What do you want? It's a question that this one psychiatrist would ask a room full of people. They were total strangers to one another. And he would do this as a therapeutic exercise. And so the people in the room were told to pair up and ask their partner one question over and over and over again. What do you want? And he writes, could anything be simpler? One innocent question and its answer. And yet time after time, I have seen this group exercise evoke unexpectedly powerful feelings. Often within minutes, the room rocks with emotion. Men and women, people who are otherwise seemingly very successful and put together, are stirred to their depths. They call out to those who are forever lost, dead or absent parents, spouses, children, friends, I want to see you again. I want your love. I want to know you're proud of me. I want to know you to know I love you and how sorry I am I never told you. I want you back. I am so lonely. I want the childhood I never had. So much wanting, so much longing, and so much pain, so close to the surface, only minutes deep. Destiny pain, existence pain, pain that is always there, worrying continuously just beneath the membrane of life. So an Easter encounter starts with this question, who are you seeking? What do you want? And Mary's answer is Jesus. And it's at that point that she gets him when he calls her by name Mary. And that's the second part of an Easter encounter. Having Jesus call us, having Jesus call us by name and recognizing 
his voice. And when we open our hearts to God, then we can hear him calling us. Paul, Christina, Brian, Angie, Elizabeth, Katie, John. And when Mary hears her name, she turns away from the tomb. She turns away from death. And this 180-degree turn that she makes is the greatest revolution in human history. She goes from Easter doubt to Easter faith. And all she wanted was Jesus. And before, she believed that he was gone forever. But now he has given Mary her heart's desire. He has given her himself. So an Easter encounter starts with being open to this question, what do you want? And it comes with Jesus calling us by name and recognizing his voice. And the third part of this Easter encounter is grasping to Jesus in faith. This is implied in Jesus' words when he says, don't cling to me. Other translations say, don't touch me. But the way the verb works is it's a continuous action. And so Jesus has allowed Mary to touch him, to encounter him, to, to grasp onto him in faith. But she doesn't, he doesn't allow her to remain Because just as important as encountering the risen Lord is is this fourth dimension of an Easter encounter, being sent to participate in God's mission. He says, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended, and you've got work to do. You've got a message about me to share with others. And here's the most foolish thing of all. The message of Easter isn't about a private, religious, spiritual experience that we keep for ourselves or that we even just keep within, you know, the safe bubble of the Christian community. You know, inside these walls, we can say whatever we want. And, you know, you do you. You know, be crazy in here. But when you go out into the world, check that at the door. But no, the message Jesus says, the risen Jesus says, is that this message about me is one that we're called to share with the world, even though it will make us sound like fools. But all we can do is say along with Mary, I have seen the Lord. Which brings us to the fifth and the very last aspect of an Easter encounter, a transformation in our relationship with God. That's the so what of Easter. Why does Easter matter, right? It's not just because God shows us he can do an amazing trick, like like a resurrection, Easter shows us that that Jesus has been proven right, that he was who he said he was, and his life and his death accomplished what he said they would. And what they've accomplished is this transformed relationship. And it can be seen in the message that he gives Mary to share. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. Jesus always referred to God as father, but he's, he's never applied that same relationship to his disciples to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And so this relationship that Jesus has with the Father by nature, he's had it from all eternity. Now those who belong to the risen Jesus by faith, they have received this exact same relationship by faith. Jesus has it by nature, and through his resurrection, we now have it by grace. And so we who were far off have been brought near. We who were enemies have now become God's friends and sons and daughters. And Jesus has taken what is ours, our sin and our shame, 
And he's given us what belongs to him, his victory over sin, death, and evil. And he's given the Holy Spirit, which sets us free and gives us hope. And so it's not just about the empty tomb. It's, it's not even just about seeing Jesus alive again in and of themselves. So those things could mean a thousand different things. The real meaning of Easter is the creation of a new relationship between Jesus and those who believe in him. A relationship of personal love and trust that grounds us, centers us, and gives us our true north. I love these words from one commentary I read this week. The the faith of a Christian has not been fully described if it falls short of a direct personal relationship of love and trust between the Christian and his or her Lord. The faith of a Christian has not been fully described if it falls short of a direct personal relationship of love and trust between the Christian and his or her Lord. Does it matter that it really happened? Yes. But just as much that it happened. We have to remember why it happened. That we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that changes us and the world from the inside out. And that's so simple that I'm sure many of you think that it's foolish. And on that, I can agree. Happy Easter Fool's Day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.